What is my purpose? I'm an educator. I lead people out of ignorance. I think the number one ignorance in this country and your country is ignorance about race. Welcome to the Purposeful Story Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs, drivers, and social impactors who use purpose as their driver to achieve greatness. My name is Kobe Mponsa, and I'm here to provide you with priceless value that will last a lifetime. So let's get right into it. This episode is really important given the racial uproar the world is currently in. I'm a black man and I've experienced racism my entire life. And I want to use this platform over the next few episodes to educate people on how to combat racism. On this episode, I have Jane Elliott, who is an international educator on racism. This lady really speaks the truth, no matter whether or not you want to hear the truth. And she tells it exactly like it is. And that's what I love about her. She is mainly known for her blue brown eyed exercise. And she's definitely a wealth of knowledge. For those individuals who are non-black, um, you can learn quite a bit from this episode if you approach it with an open mind and you're willing to learn. So I hope you enjoy it. So Jane, thank you for coming on the show today. Well, I'm, I'm extremely flattered to think that you'd want to have me on your show <laughs> since black women have forgotten more since breakfast where racism is concerned and I will ever learn. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, Jane, just to start off, I always like to ask my guests, how are you during these times, you know, with the pandemic? I'm and the- furious. I'm furious and I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed and I'm disgusted. And I, I am just totally disillusioned about people who have claimed to care for all these years and they're backing off. But I am extremely extremely happy about what all those young people of all different colors are doing out in the streets all over the United States. Mm -hmm. To see that many people of different color groups, different genders, different orientation, gender orientations, different ages, different religion out there protesting what finally, finally, we've seen with our own eyes and we can't deny it. And neither can the people who did it deny it. And they've done it three times in the last week. Hmm. Seem, I think they think that they can still get away with it. They can't. In the age of modern technology, where everybody's carrying a cell phone, everybody then has a camera, you'd best start being careful about how you treat other people because you're going to get caught. Mm-hmm. And if we had the proper justice going in this country, those people who got caught would have been charged immediately. They wouldn't have been sent home under or not even under house arrest they are simply they've been released from the police department but they haven't suffered for what they did to those young men it was interesting to watch the young man in atlanta take care of two burly white males and then run away that says something about the strength of black people that says something about our ability to survive that says something about our about black people's desire not to kill nor to be killed 
that in this society for the last hundred years has been kill or be killed, as if we were a bunch of savages. We aren't savages, we're supposedly one of the most civilized countries on the face of the earth, but we aren't. As long as you, as long as you regard a third of your population as less than human, as long as you allow people who are First Nations people on Navajo reservations to die in large numbers because of this COVID-19, as long as you allow a whole lot of black people to die because of COVID-19 and say, well, there's nothing we can do. Well, there is something we can do. We'd better get busy and do it. We'd better start seeing all those people of color as members of the same race. And every time the television, you know, the news comes on and the commentators talk about all those different racial groups out there in the streets, there's only one racial group there. It's the human race. There's only one race on the face of the earth. How long is it going to take us to wake up to that and stop pretending that what we were taught since 1492 is the truth? It isn't the truth. It's time to get over that. It's time to stop believing what Linnaeus said when he said there are four different races. There's only one race. Please. And I'll repeat that over and over and over, and you'll get tired of hearing it. But you need to realize that if you're selling a product, if you want consumers to buy it, you have to advertise it at least four times. So I'm going to start, I'm going to say, there's only one race, the human race. You and I are 30th to 50th cousins because we have the same ancestor back there 30,000, 300,000 to 500,000 years ago. Get over this idea of more than one race. If we could regard one another as simply members of the same race but of different color groups, then we could do away with this racism. We'd have to call it colorism, but then it makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jane, wow. Um, what made you decide to become an educator? My father said he wouldn't, he wouldn't help me if I went to nurses training. He said he didn't want me to be given animals to the dirty old men. And so I became a teacher because he told me to. So I didn't want to be an educator. I wanted to be a nurse. Um, we're probably lucky that I didn't, become a nurse because somebody would have suffered greatly. <laughs> and um, what, what made you, I mean, you, you said why you wanted to become an educator, but what made you want to focus on racism? I didn't want to focus on racism. I wanted to focus on human beings. Got you. I wanted to focus on the true history. I wanted to focus on real social studies. But instead, in order to be a really good teacher in this country, I had to follow the elementary, standard elementary curriculum. And the social studies was anti-social studies. You don't call a group of First Nations people Indians because, just because Columbus didn't know where he was. And you don't teach that Columbus discovered America. If there were people already living when he got here, they discovered it before he got here. So, mm. But I had to teach the standard elementary curriculum. I did it in very strange ways and ways that got around the curriculum. I taught in ways that taught my children, my students the truth, and then I'd tell them, now here's what you have to answer on the test, but you know, and I know, that here are some things that you need to know that are more true than what, you're, what you've read in the social studies book. I was teaching about, huh, we are studying the Indian unit, and we call it the Indian unit because that's what you call it in the springtime, and I taught it in the springtime because those little third graders, the sap was rising, the birds were singing, the grass was growing, and they wanted to get out of school. So you have to teach with something that will be exciting. And the Indian unit was really exciting, and our lesson plan for the next day 
was this was on uh, November, uh, April 4th. An lesson, our lesson plan for the next day was to learn the Sioux Indian prayer that says, Oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. We were going to, I, was to, I was taking the teepee home that my pre, previous third graders had made. We were going to put it up in my, our classroom the next day, paint it with Indian symbols chosen by white folks, read Indian poetry written by white folks, and sing Indian songs written by white folks. And I was, had it under my arm, I was going to take it home, wash it, iron it, wash it, dry it, and iron it. I walked in the door of my house, the telephone was ringing, it was my sister. She said, is your television on? I said, no. She said, you better turn it on. I said, why? She said, because we shot, they shot him. I said, who did we shoot this time? Because we were in a shooting mood at that time. Hmm. And she said, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and then my, my world turned, stopped turning in that moment. And I've never forgotten how sick I got inside when I realized that we had done it to somebody who only wanted us to live with hope. Mm-hmm. And hope for me was meant holding on to positive energy. That's all he wanted. He wanted to make life better for all of us, not just for black people. I was just furious. So I washed and dried the teepee, fed the kids, put them to bed, spread the teepee out on the living room rug, was watching television. This is after, the night after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. There was Walter Cronkite with three leaders of the black community. And he said to those men, don't you, uh, when our leader was killed, his his widow held us together. Who's going to keep your your people in mind? I was absolutely gobsmacked. How could he say that? When our leader was killed, his widow held us together. See how civilized we are? I thought, Hmm. you're crazy. So I changed the channel. And there was Dan Rather saying to three black males, don't you Negroes think you should feel sympathy for us white people because we can't feel the anger at this killing that you black people can. Wow. And I thought, what in hell are we talking about here? We're talking as though this black man isn't one of us. He isn't a citizen of the U.S. He's something maybe not even of this planet. I was absolutely furious. So I rolled the teepee up. I threw it in the closet. I got my husband's supper ready. When he came home, I told, he said to me when he came in, he, they shot him, didn't they? I said, yeah, they did. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to do what I learned from Adolf Hitler. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm going to separate my students on the basis of the color of their eyes tomorrow. And I'm going to discriminate against those who have the wrong color eyes. He said, if you do that, you'll lose your job. I said, if I lose my job for teaching the truth, I don't want to keep this job. He said, you better not do that. These kids need to be fed and watered. I said, well, we'll have to find another way. I'll go someplace else to teach. He said, nobody else will hire you if you lose your job for doing what you have in mind. I said, then then I guess I'll go to work in a grocery store or something. Well, he said, you better think that over. Well, I thought it over. The next morning I got up. I went to school. First student in the room, Stephen Armstrong, came in and said, hey, Elliot, they shot that king last night. Why'd they shoot that king? I said, we're going to talk about that. So after we had done the things you have to do first thing in the morning, say the Pledge of Allegiance, the flag, with the words under God in it, which do not belong there. You're breaking the law every time you do it. And then we sang God Bless America, which is a prayer, but it's a good song to sing in the morning because it wakes kids up and keeps them really interested for a while. And then we started to talk about the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. And I asked those kids what they knew about blacks. They knew every negative stereotype I had ever heard about blacks and some that I had never heard of. And, I and how old were they? Those kids. What? How old Nine were they? Nine years old. Crazy. Nine years old. They're third graders. And yet they know exactly. I said, how, 
how do you, how do you kids know these things are true? And almost in a course they said, because my dad said so. I said to them, do you have any idea how it would feel to be a black child in the United States of America? No, would you like to know? Yeah, it was like, we've already gotten out of spelling and handwriting, keep this broad talk and we don't have to learn anything all day long. Now, you know, students do that all the time. Just get the coach talking in social studies and you don't have to learn anything all day long. I said, okay, today, I think we'll judge people by the color of their eyes. And since I'm blue-eyed, and most of the students in this room are blue-eyed, brown-eyed people are going to be on the top the first day. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I mean blue-eyed people are as smart as brown-eyed people. They are as clean as brown-eyed people. They are as civilized as brown-eyed people. You give blue-eyed people something nice, what do they do with it? And they automatically said, they wreck it. And then little Debbie sitting in the front row, little brown-eyed Debbie looked up at me and said, how come you're the teacher here if you've got them blue eyes? And I thought, there it is. Right there it is. She is nine years old. She has to look up to me because I'm the teacher and I'm an adult. But she has the right now to challenge me because wow. she has the right color eyes. I learned more in that three-minute exchange than I have learned before or since. I was absolutely shocked. And then Blue-eyed Alan Moss in the back stood, back and stood up and said, if she didn't have them blue eyes, she'd be the principal and the superintendent. They're both brown-eyed. Now, I don't think they were brown-eyed. I think he was doing what people who are out of power do to protect the other people who are out of power. They will do whatever they have to do to protect them. That is the worst day I have ever taught in my many years of teaching. It was so bad that I went down to the teacher's lounge at noon to talk to the other two third-grade teachers. I needed some support. I walked into the lounge. There were probably eight teachers in the lounge. I told them what was happening in my classroom. The day after Martin Luther King Jr. was died, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, for God's sake. Wow. I told them what was happening, and the younger of the two third grade teachers, she was probably 52 or 53 at the time, said, I don't know how you have time for that extra stuff. It's all I can do to teach reading, writing, arithmetic. Well, as far as I was concerned, she hadn't taught reading, writing, and arithmetic yet, but we well, won't go into that. The other one, who was over 60 years old, had been molding young minds for over 30 years, said on the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. I thought, I don't know why you're doing that. I thought it was about time somebody shot that son of a bitch. And not one teacher frowned, and not one teacher said, Helen, God is love. And not one teacher said, in so much as ye have done it unto me, so have you done it unto one of my brethren, so have you done it unto me. Nobody said that, and these were all good God-fearing Christian women. I went back to my classroom absolutely determined that no person of any age or any status would ever leave my presence with those attitudes unchanged, unchallenged. I may not be able to change your attitude, but I can challenge your attitude. And you have to prove to me that white, so-called white people are superior to people of other color groups. And you can't do it because it isn't true. Now, you can try. And we've been trying to do that for many years. But it doesn't work. We have held them down. We have paid them too little. We have forced them to do jobs that are beneath their, their knowledge, beneath their experience, beneath their intelligence, so that we can pay them less, so that we can keep them in a position that supports our evaluations of people. We force people to live down to our evaluations of them. And when they do, we say, see, you're all like that. We create a mess that we didn't have to have. We create a problem we didn't have to have. Can you imagine what it would be like in this country if we had never created racism? Now, usually I wear a shirt that says God created one race, the human race. Human beings created racism. We did create racism. We created racism. Anything you create, you can destroy. 
we could destroy racism in two generations. I know that without a doubt. And we're going to have to destroy racism in the next two generations because within 30 years, white folks, so-called white folks, will be a numerical minority in the United States of America. And the one most often asked question when I do a speech anywhere is some liberal pale-faced female says, aren't they going to want to get even with us if they get power? If they get on top, aren't they going to want to do to us what we have done to them? And I say, oh my God, do you know what you just said? You just admitted that you have treated them the way you wouldn't want to be treated. Yeah. She doesn't recognize what she has just done because she's pale-faced and she doesn't have to admit that what she just did was an indication of her utter ignorance. I was astounded at what my kids learned that day, but I was more astounded at what I learned in the teacher's lounge. So I went up to, went up to my parents' home that evening before I went home from school to tell, I needed some support, I need somebody to talk to. So I told my mother what was going on and she said to me, Jane, you better be careful. You don't wanna end up where Aunt Eunice did. I said, where did Aunt Eunice end up? In a mental institution. She thought that what I was describing sounded insane. And she's right to pick out a group of people on the basis of a physical characteristic over which they have absolutely no control and treat them as though all the negative things you're saying about them are true. That's a mental illness. That's something that's crazy. It isn't a mental illness. People who are perfectly, who consider themselves perfectly sane do it all the time. We lower our expectations for certain groups of people. We force them to live down to our expectations of them. And when they do, we say, see, you're all like that. I told you so. I, I realized for the last three years, I've been watching the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise being replicated all over the United States of America. And you need to know that I learned that from Adolf Hitler. Hmm. I read about the Hitler years, about the Holocaust. I read about the Nazi doctors. I remember what they did then. And now I'm, and I've copied that to that blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise. And now I'm seeing that same thing happen in this society all over the United States every day. People who are younger than I am don't realize that because they weren't here when that was going on. I was born the year Adolf Hitler and Franklin Roosevelt came to power. And I watched my father react in anger and disgust and despair and really furious about the things that we were hearing about Adolf Hitler doing. And when somebody said to President Franklin Roosevelt, what are you going to do about Hitler? He said, leave that man alone. He's dealing with a problem the rest of us don't want to deal with. Now think about that. Just think about that. But he, was, at the same time, was preparing to, have, to fight a war. So here we are now. That was in 1941. Here we are in 2020, watching the same things happen today that happened then. And I know that people who are watching this now are gonna say, that woman's off her rocker, what the hell's the matter with her? If you don't believe it, then you get the book, When at Times the Mob is Swayed by, hmm, his last name, I'll think, Newborn. His last name is Newborn. Get that book and read it, and you will see exactly why what I'm saying isn't just my imagination, and I'm not just hysterical. The man in the White House is, has, is basing his political and his governing styles on Adolf Hitler. So divide and conquer. Pick out a group of people, 
make them the villains, then convince those who are not like that person that they are the villains, and you can create a situation just like the Nazis created for the Jews in Europe in 19, from 1933 till 1941. And I know people are gonna say, it's not like, oh yes it is. But the difference is, now we've got people, young people of all colors, young people of all colors, not of all races, because there's only one race and I'm tired of hearing them called all races, no. We've got young people of all color groups out in the street because they see what's happening. And even though they haven't gone through it and they didn't read enough about history to know what's going on, they are smart enough to know that there's something grossly wrong here and it has to be stopped. We had better listen to these young people and we had better not let the people who are running these cities all over the United States send the police out to stop them because they aren't doing something that's violent until some of the outside agitators, if that's what you want to call them, start some, something going on and then the police are called in. We don't need the police. These people are protesters. They are not rioters. And they're protesting the ugliness of racism. And somebody has to do it. These young people are in such huge numbers. You aren't gonna have enough cops to, to solve this problem. You're mm -hmm. going to have to change the kinds of education that you offer in this country. You've got to stop teaching the, the regular story about history in this country and start telling the truth. These kids are gonna, these young people are going to force that to happen. Well said, Jane, well said. And it's interesting too, because um, everyone watches America. I'm, I'm from Canada, but you'll have people in Canada and you're, you're well-traveled. You'll have people in Canada say that um, racism doesn't exist here. <laughs> I've worked in Canada. And anytime somebody in Canada tells you that racism doesn't work here, you need to say, wait a minute, fool. Let me tell you how racism works. <laughs> racism looks like a cabbie in some place in Canada where I was giving a speech. We got in the cab and we said we want to go to, and it was a, it was a Native American, it was a First Nations restaurant. He said, I don't want to go, I don't, I don't know why I want to go there. You can't win there unless you got a gun. I said, you're kidding me. He said, absolutely, I know what those people are like. They'll be in big, they'll be, I'll have lots of business tomorrow because it's when the welfare checks come out. They can, then they can take a cab. And I sat there and I thought, racism doesn't exist in Canada. Isn't that wonderful? Then what the <laughs> hell is it? What was he saying? Good, merciful heaven. I did, a, I did the, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation filmed in my classroom the second year I did the exercise. They took that film to Canada and threw it into, they edited it down to half an hour, threw it into a program called The Way It Was. I think it was on Friday night. And they called me and said, you've got to get up here. We've got an angry populace. They want to know what that woman was doing to little, poor little children in Riceville, Iowa. I said, fine, I'll come up there. So I went up there. I had to buy a dress to wear up there because I, was, I had to have something to wear. So I bought a dress, made a big mistake. I bought a dress with buttons about this big, this tall, all down the back of it. Do not, you don't have to worry about that, but tell women not to do that if they're gonna have to sit down for a long period. I'll well, let them into know. The, yeah, into the studio and looked out through the observation glass and there in the studio was a set of risers and there was a little kidney bean shaped dais in the front of them. I said, what's that? To, you know, pointed at the, rise, at the dais. He said, that's where you're gonna sit. I said, who are those people? He said, those are the people who have come here to question you. 
I said, this looks like a setup. He said, it is. Let's go. And he took me by the arm. He took me out. He set me down on one of the three chairs on the dais. He said, folks, this is Jane Elliott. She is coming here to talk to you about what she was doing with her children, their third graders, in Riceville, Iowa. Almost 200 Canadians raised their hands and commenced to ask me what I thought I was doing with those poor little children. Almost the first one, in fact, the first one was a woman, a pale-faced woman, who stood up and said, don't you think that you, it's, don't you think you can do severe damage with those children by using that exercise with them for a day? I said, yes. And if you think that's severe for a day, what do you think about what happens to children of color in your country and mine? It happens to them all the time. She said, that's different. They're used to it. They can take it. Wow. Yeah. They're wow. used to it. They can take it. I've heard that. I've heard that more times than I can count. Really? Out of white women who say, well, it, it hurt my heart when you did this to me. And I say, what about the black child whose heart is hurting? She said, that's used, they're used to it. They can take it. They're tough. About halfway through that thing, an older white woman stood up and said, Miss Elliot, I came here to tell you how much I hate you. And I thought, join the group. She said, I'm Jewish. I was born in Germany. She said, one day, every morning, our headmaster would come in and say, good, we, would, we, would, we would bow. We would bow and say, good morning, Herr Headmaster. She said, one day he came in with two SS troopers. And those SS troopers said to us, you're no longer going to bow and say, good morning, Herr Headmaster. You will salute and say, Heil Hitler. She said, I watched those who valued their faith, their life, more than their faith, salute and say, Heil Hitler. She said, those who valued their faith more than life itself continued to bow and say, good morning, Herr Headmaster. She said, they disappeared and we never saw them again. She said, your students are fortunate. They'll see what is happening and they'll put a stop to it. We didn't, and we didn't put a stop to it. She said, they will never allow to happen in your country what we allowed to happen in ours. Now think about that. This is a woman who has been over the road. She knows she's gone through this. And those few survivors that are left from that could tell us if we would listen to them. But we think they're too old to know anything. And indeed, a whole lot of folks think I'm too old to know anything. The problem is, I'm too old and know too much. Mm. I can see it when it's happening. I can tell you what's going to happen. And I don't have a crystal ball. I have a memory. And there are books out there that you could read that would tell you exactly what I'm saying, but we don't have time. Most of us, most of the population of this country is screen addicted. Yeah. We'll watch anything that comes on the screen We'll, we don't listen, but we watch it because that's the way we have been trained up to this point. We aren't educating people in this country, in the schools in this country, as far as I'm concerned. Too many are being indoctrinated instead of educated. The standard elementary curriculum is absolutely not what we should be, how we should be educating children. We have to start telling the truth. But I remember the first year, my first, my first year in at the University of Northern Iowa, a, super, uh, a professor stood up in front of us, all these young, foolish, young white women. He stood up in front of us and said, I'm sorry, but when Admiral Hershey did the selective service exams during the wars, he found out that the people who scored the lowest on the selective service exams were the ones in the education department. That doesn't say much about education, and it irritates the devil out of me. But this young man stood up in front of us and said, when you get into the classroom, you must not teach in opposition to the local mores. That's M-O-R-E-S. It isn't M-O-R-A-Y-S, the way somebody wrote it in an article. You must not teach in opposition to the local mores. The people who are paying your wages 
through their taxes, have the right to have their children learn what they want them to learn. I thought, that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. If I go into a racist community that I can't teach in opposition to racism, did I stand up and say, Mr. Professor, you're crazy? No, I didn't. I wanted to get a grade. I wanted to get out of there. So I sat there and let that happen. I should have said, wait a minute, what you just said makes no sense at all. But for him, that did make sense. That's the way, if you haven't read the book, The History Stick, The Hickory Stick, The Hickory Stick, and I don't remember the author's name, but I read The Hickory Stick many years ago, and it's about school education in the 30s. Everybody should get it and read it. I hope you can find a copy of it. If you find a copy of it, buy it, send it to me, I'll pay you for it. It okay. was just an excellent description of what was happening in schools at that time. They were told not to let these kids out of their desks. Whatever you do, don't let these kids out of their desks. Well, now they don't want to leave their desks because there's a computer right there in front of them. They don't have to read unless they read it off the computer. And if they have headsets, they don't have to read at all because it's coming through that and into their ears so they don't have to read. I'm really concerned about the fact that too many kids are too addicted to screens. Yeah, I mean, now, cell phones. I'm, I'm going to be horribly, horribly vilified for saying such a thing. But <laughs> no, I agree. Check students are being schooled with computers. I agree. I agree. Um, I recently read this book called Digital Minimalism, and it talks about how um, we're in this digital age, but people are literally addicted to their phones. They'll literally with any spare time at all, they'll pick up their phone for no reason. Right. Um, so you're, you're, you, you, you're, you're on the ball with that for sure. Um, quick question, Jane. So, you know, going through your whole entire experience, this, this must've been, how did you, you must've made some, some, some sacrifices. I'm just going to assume because, you know, you, you started doing this at a time. I mean, even now you're doing it at a time where it's not liked, right. It's not liked. And, um, you you only know the truth and you speak the truth, but how did you deal with some of the backlash? Like, tell me about that experience. <laughs> I found out how it feels to lose all your friends overnight because that what I what I did with my third graders, they went home and told their parents about, it. and their parents called their friends, and their friends called their relatives, and their relatives called my relatives. And I found out how typhoid Mary must have felt when nobody would speak to her. Hmm. I could walk through the halls of that building and not have one teacher speak to me. They were saying my name, but it was after I walked by and it was behind my back. Wow. My children who went to school in that system, their belongings were destroyed. They were verbally and physically abused by their peers, by the teachers of their peers, and by some of the parents of their peers. My parents lost their job, their business. They had a restaurant in the hotel that my husband and I owned, and people stopped going to eat there because nobody wanted to be seen walking into the building owned by the town's only N-word lover. I found out how it feels to be ostracized because you did something you thought was right, but it was against the local... I, I taught in opposition to the local mores. And I got in a lot of trouble for it. However, the only people who never told me to stop until the, my last principal were my principal and my superintendent. And after I was done teaching, the third superintendent I had, they asked him, second superintendent, asked him, 
what he thought of Jane Elliott, and he said, I wish I had a whole building full of Jane Elliott's. But they couldn't say that at the time, and they couldn't stand up for me, they couldn't protect me. They just had to hope that I wasn't going to do something silly, like resign, and I didn't. And I was never asked to resign, because they knew, those administrators knew, that what I was doing was right, and it was making a difference with those students. Furthermore, <laughs> After I taught there for two years, I took a course in how to train the dyslexic child. And I could teach that chair to read if it had a mouth. So they didn't want they didn't want to lose me. They were willing to put up with my oddities as long as I kept on teaching people to read. Hmm. It was ugly. It, and and it hurt my two oldest children and it changed the way they are. It changed what they might have been. They were angry and they were they didn't trust people anymore. They were suspicious, and it was ugly for them. Neither of them ever wanted to go back to Riceville when we moved away from there. And we only we moved because the principal's wife came to me at a, at a uh, teacher's conference one day and said, Jane, and she taught at the high school level. She said, Jane, you've got to get your kids out of this school. These teachers are trying to destroy your children. And they were. They were doing everything they could to make my two oldest children suffer and to know that they were suffering. So I found a house in Osage, Iowa. I, I found a house six miles from Osage. And I moved, we moved our family here and I kept on teaching in Riceville. So I took my kids out of, their, out of their abuse, away from their abuse. And things were better in Osage. But, um, and, and you have to understand that 80% of the people in Riceville didn't hate what I did. But the 20%, the loud people, were determined not to see progress happen. They made it tough, so tough for us. I'll never forget the teacher who said after she moved up and was in was and she she um, applied for my job and got it anyway. Anyway, she said to me one summer when I went there for a meeting for a, an, a uh, celebration of some kind. I said you were doing some really exciting things in your classroom, and you stopped all of a sudden. What happened? She said, I didn't want to be treated the way you were. I couldn't afford to be treated the way you were, so I had to stop doing those things. Now, think about that. Wow. Before they realized that she was going to teach the way I did, she was accepted. And then when they found out that she was going to be one of those teachers who did creative, exciting, interesting things, they started abusing her. She said, I didn't want to be treated the way you were, so I just, I just settled down. I never mm -hmm. did settle down, and I still haven't. So what advice would you give to um, parents who, I mean, like, tell me about your experience educating your kids on racism. Like, what, what, what was that experience like for you? Well, my kids learned not to treat people unfairly on the basis of the color of their skin because they had been treated unfairly on the basis of my saying it's wrong to treat un people unfairly on the basis of the color of their skin. My children are different from their peers, and they're different from most of their aunts and uncles and niece and, and their cousins because they had a different kind of upbringing. They had to suffer through really ugly abuse from the age of, well, I think Sarah was, must have been 12 or 13 when I did it. Brian was a year younger. Mary was two years younger, and Mark was four years younger. We had four children in five years, and we found out what was causing that. And so they were all in elementary and junior and senior high school at the same time. So every one of them, the two oldest, suffered the most. The other two, the reason the other two didn't suffer as much is because 
when Mary was in third grade, that's the year I did the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise. So all her peers knew about it and understood about it because some of them had been through it. And the same thing was true for Mark. He'd, they, he'd had peers that were, had gone through the exercise. So they understood what I was doing and what was happening. So they didn't give Mark and Mary a bad time. But they physically, they, they beat up on Brian. They did horrible things to Sarah. They could not, they couldn't get to me, so they got to my kids. Hmm. And that's unfortunate. And the way some of those teachers behaved, they should never have been allowed to be in a classroom again. And what advice would but, you give? But 80%, but 80 of the people in Riceville didn't go along with that. They just didn't protest. And a couple of them have apologized to me and said, I wish we had stood up for you. And I've said, you didn't have to stand up for me. I had to stand up for me. You have to live with those people. I, I understand why you didn't stand up. You didn't want to be treated the way I was being treated. They said, yes, but we're sorry. I said, forget it. You can't change the past. What you do in the future and in the present is a whole lot more important than what you've done in the past. You can stop, you can stop it when you see it now. And they agreed that, and that some of those people had, had children in my classroom and thank me for what I taught their children. So what age is considered too young, quote unquote, to teach your children um, about racism? If you're pre-birth. Pre-birth. We start teaching ra- racism pre-birth. Really? I was, asked, I was asked to talk to a group of midwives not too long ago in a major city. And I said, why do you want to talk to me? I was delivered of children. I didn't deliver them myself. I know nothing about medicine. They said, that's not what we want to talk to you about. We are all midwives. We, were, we are all registered nurses. We have worked in delivery rooms. And we know that women, brown and black women, do not get the same treatment that white women do in the delivery room. I said, oh, my God, I've heard this before, but I've never heard it from the nurses. And they said, yes. That's the reason we're going to be midwives, is so the children that so that mothers can be treated fairly. Now think about that. I've had a black woman tell me that the doctor came in after they delivered her child and said, Your child will never walk or talk, so we're just going to keep keep him here. She said, No, you're not, I'm taking my son home. We'll take care no, you won't take care of my son. I'm taking my son home. She took her son home. She was a black woman. She took her son home son home and she raised him, and he's a successful human being. But if she hadn't protested, she wouldn't have taken that child home. Look at the picture on, like, on the Time magazine for this week. If you haven't seen it, oh, just a minute, I just happen to have it here. Look at this drawing on the Time magazine. And then look at wow. the word, that's what's on the border. These are names of the people who have been killed because of racism recently. This is one of the most searing examples of this is, what, this is what you get in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Hmm. You see, I'm in the land of the free. Your mother is in the home of the brave. I can be free. She has to be brave. Every day when she sends one of her sons, particularly over the years, when she did, when she sent one of her sons out of her house into this, this ugly society, which is in its racism is ugly, she had to pray that he'd come back not beaten too badly, and that he would come back alive. I didn't realize, I thought I, I thought I knew, I've done this for so long, but two years ago, I was asked to speak to a, a major university, and I was talking only to administrators, 
and heads of department, department heads. And they introduced me and said, blah, 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 and this, then this young, this white, liter, you know, one of those people <laughs> who was just so, so sweet and so pleasant and so knowing and so educated stood up and said, why do we have to talk about differences? We're, there are, we are more similar than we are differences. Why different? Why don't we talk about similarities instead of differences? I said, well, I'll show you why we don't. Will you come up here? And I pointed at a tall white male there, and I didn't have any idea who he is. All he had was the necessary characteristics. You come up here. And, well, yeah, he would. He'd be glad to. And I pointed at a taller black woman on the other side. I said, will you join me up here? So I had this tall white male on my left, this tall black female on my right. And I said, now, folks hoping that they'd flunk this test. He said, now folks, do you see any differences here? What do you suppose the first thing they said? Height, because I'm 5'1", and those other two were over six feet tall, and they said height. I thought, well, you flunked that one, let's see how often you'll flunk this test. So I asked this tall white male, is your height important to you? No. I said, well, would you rather be your height or mine? Well, mine, I said, then let me ask this question again. Is your height important to you? Does your height give you power? Yeah. Did you earn your height? No. Is it, a, is it a prize? No. Is it a physical characteristic over which you have no control? Yes. I said, is there anything you're afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. I thought, you silly ass. Shut up now. Just stop now. So I turned to this black woman. I said, is your height important to you? She said, yeah. I asked. As I said, does it give you, does it give you power? She said, there are uh, some other things we have to deal with. I said, don't worry. We're going to get to them. So I said, he, he has power because of his Height. Now, do you see any other differences here? So somebody said sex. I said to this tall white male, is your sex important to you? And immediately I turned him into a man of color. He was bright red. I said, wait, let me put that another way. Is the fact that you're male important to you? Yes. Did you, did you earn being male? No. And went through that. Does being male give you power? Yeah. And once again, he's not afraid of anybody. He's a tall male, okay? So I said to this black woman, is your gender as important to you that you're female? She said, yes, but there are some other issues we have to deal with. I said, we'll get to them. So I asked him again, do you see any other difference? So they said age. And he, he's, he's the right age, and he's not going to live long if he keeps running his mouth like that. But now, oh, so we went through that. His age gives him power. Asked the black woman, does you? Yes, but we have, she kept saying, I finally said, do you see any other differences here? And finally, somebody said color. I said, well, thank you very much. That's the first time anyone has ever said color in response to these questions. Now, are you talking about hair color or skin color? They said, skin color. So I said to this tall white male, is your skin color important to you? And he said, I never have to think of it. That was exactly the wrong answer. Boom. And the rest of the group, all of a sudden, their eyes were different than they had been before. And I said, now, does the fact that you're a person with no color, a white person, does that give you power? Yes. Can you go and be and do and say whatever you want to? Yes, I can. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a powerful person. I said, because you've got power because of your gender, your age, your height, and your color, haven't you? Yes, I've got lots of power. And I thought, you silly ass. You don't know when to shut up. So I said to this black woman, is your color important to you? She paused for a long moment. And then she said, I'm going to say something now that I've never said before. I said, and that's because, she said, because I'm ashamed of it. I said, and that would be, she said, I have, this is hard for me to do because I remember it so well. Hmm. She said, I have two children. Both of them are girls. 
And by this time, there was one, one tear sliding very slowly down that beautiful black cheek. She said, both times when I was pregnant, I prayed that I wouldn't have a son. I said, and that's because, she said, because I didn't want to think about what he and what I'd have to go through when I lost him. Hmm. You could have heard a feather fall in that room at that moment. And I said to that group, she just taught you more in three sentences than I could teach you in a lifetime. We white women want to have sons so that they will carry on the family name. She doesn't even have that right. Now, the next time you people sing the Star Spangled Banner, when you come to the last sentence, oh, say, does that Star Spangled Banner yet wave? Or the land of the free? And I pointed at the white male and the home of the brave. Because that's the way it is. We white folks are free. That black woman has to be brave to get through the day and to pray that her sons live through the night. Is there something wrong with this? Yeah, those were educated people in that room. Those were the people who were teaching people how to behave and what to believe and what our history is. I am concerned. I am very concerned. Those young people who are out in the street are going to go into classes if we ever go back to school again. They're going to go into classes after this summer with a whole different attitude. And their instructors had better get their act together because those kids are going to know more than their instructors want them to know. And in many cases, more than their instructors know about racism. They've done studies in this country that prove that the longer you stay in school, the more bigoted you become. Because the longer you stay in school, the more years you have to be reinforced in what you learn grades K through 12. And most of what you learn grades K through 12 is built on the idea that we want to make you good American citizens. And the way we do that is we teach you how to be a good American citizen. We don't even say United States citizens. We <laughs> You'll get a lot of letters on this one. We are so benighted that we think that America is just the 48 contiguous states in Alaska and Hawaii and the islands. We think that is all of America. America is every country from the most northern point of Canada to the most southern point of South America. That's North America, Central America, and South America. They're all Americans, and we're going to build a wall on the southern border of America to keep people who aren't Americans out of America. Now, isn't that a cute trick? Think about the idiocy of those statements that he has made. Think about the ignorance of right now, if I turn on the television right now, there along the bottom of the, of the screen will be something that says, America in crisis. America isn't in crisis. The United States is in crisis. But we call America is just this many, the 50, the 50 states. That constitutes America. Get over it. That's bad education. I didn't realize that till my till people from who had fought the Second World War came back from Germany and the whole ugly business in Europe and said to my dad, you know, we've got to quit calling ourselves Americans. He said, why, 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 why would we do that? And he said, because there were people there from Bolivia and Argentina and, and all those South America and Canada, all those countries. And they said to us, you guys aren't the only Americans. 
we're Americans too, and we're fighting this war against the Axis. It had never occurred to him that when we sing America the Beautiful, we aren't singing about all of America, all of the Americas, we're only singing about the 48 states, and that's how many there were at that time. Now think about that. We are, we are constantly conditioned to the myth of America the Beautiful, and <laughs> the fact that we constitute Americans. Want to talk about ignorance? Want to talk about power? Want to talk about money? If you have enough money, you don't have to know anything. And if you know too much and you're the wrong color, you aren't going to get much money. That's just a fact. That's just a simple fact of life in this country. And if you do make money as a young black male, you are pointed out as a credit to your race, as if you were a different race than I am. Wild. Do I sound a bit fanatic to you? Not at all. Well, I'm really angry. I'm really disappointed. I'm really thinking of Colin Kaepernick, who knelt instead of standing for the Star Spangled Banner, right? Because he knows what the last, first, the last line means, and he knows that the Star Spangled Banner came from a racist poem. You read the second verse of that and it will shock you down to your souls. So it, but he has been condemned for having done that. He did the right thing. Peacefully too. But he was black and had the right to do the right thing. Go on. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Over here in, in, in Canada, Jane, um, like I said, there's a myth that there is no racism here, but you know, we have a big um, immigrant population. Right. So uh, my family, we originate from Ghana and there's there's just immigrants from all over the world. So there's this myth that racism doesn't exist because we are a, um, a multicultural, uh, you know, city or, or country, what have you. Um, and it's very interesting because it's it's almost more dangerous because the, the, the racism is more hidden. It's more subtle. Um, it's, is it subtle to you or do you recognize it when you see it and hear it? Well, that's, that's the right question. It's not subtle to me, but it's not as out there and overt as, um, you know, as America. Because everyone's focusing on America, but it's, it's really worldwide. It is the result of people being told what to think and not to think anything else. Don't think outside the box. Because if you do, you're, you know, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be treated like Elliot is. And let me tell you, I get lots of death threats. <laughs> and now I laugh. And I say to those three young boys who are sitting in the audience at a, at a college, who are wearing those red caps that say, make America great again, which really say, make America hate again. And they're talking while I'm talking. I stop talking. I say, look, fellas, I know what you're talking about. You'd like to see me dead. Let me tell you something. You can shoot me on your campus, but if you do, you might make a martyr out of me, and then you might have to spend the rest of your lives celebrating Jane Elliott Day once a year. Now, do you want to do that? And they'll go, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I say, that's right, you don't. Now sit down, shut up, and listen, and stop being foolish about this. Hmm. We, thought, we thought we could do away with Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream by killing him. That dream is more alive now than it was when he was alive. Who was it said? 
and you, you can't, nothing, no power on earth can stop a man with a dream or an idea whose time has come. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. He dreamed of a hopeful situation in which we would all be treated as members of the same race, or at least, at least equally. His dream is still alive. He couldn't kill it. You can't kill it. And those kids out in the street this week, in these last three weeks, have proven that you can't kill it. No power on earth is going to be able to stop that. And no power on earth is going to be able to stop the idea of one race, the human race. It's an idea whose time has come. And no one is going to be able to kill it. Make no mistake about that. When those young people go out in the street to support one another because they watch that horror on television, and all of a sudden, young, pale-faced kids say, oh, my God, that's the way it is. So we'll replay that and replay that and replay that and pretend and say that we're replaying it so people will see how horrible it is. No, I don't think that's the reason we're replaying it. I think we're replaying the picture of that man lying on the ground or that policeman's knee on his neck to intimidate young black boys and their mothers. And I think they should stop running that over and over and over. What does that do to the little black kid who sees that? What does he dream about after he has seen that on television? Right there before your eyes. Here, we'll show it again, we'll show it again, we'll show it again. If you aren't convinced yet, now we'll show another. Show you another one that we killed this week. And if that doesn't do it, we'll show you one that we'll, we'll kill next week. I think it's time to realize the trauma that we are causing in little boys, particularly little black boys, by re-showing that over and over. And I think we ought to know the damage that we're doing to little white boys. Yeah. You see that, and who have always wanted to be cops. Mm -hmm. Look at the power that a cop has. Look at what I can do if I get to be a cop. Look what I can do. And I know, I know, there are white adult males who watch that and say, well, that's one less to worry about. You know it, and I know it. Now, let's tell the truth about this. And this would happen, it isn't just in the United States. I'm getting calls from London. I'm getting calls from Ireland. I'm getting calls from Greece. I'm get, I've gotten calls from about 14 different nations because it's happening in every one of them. Because for how many years, the United States has been the leader of the Western world and we have been leading in the wrong direction. So we have been instrumental in promoting the myth of race. And it isn't a myth, it's a lie. It's a flat out lie. A myth is something that you, I probably said this to you, the myth is something that you make up to explain something in nature that you don't understand. Make up a myth. The Greeks had a myth that said the sun was a god that goes across the sky in a golden chariot every morning. They believed it for thousands of years. We made up the idea of several different races isn't a myth. It's a lie. A lie is something you make up to justify your undesirable and ugly behaviors. And that's what the name, the, the name of the book that Robert Wald Sussman wrote should have been called The Lie of Race instead of The Myth of Race. But pale faces aren't going to read a book that's entitled The Lie of Race. We don't want to know that. We'll accept it being called a myth because that's kind of a euphemism and we, don't, we can accept that. But to say that we have lied all these years, we don't, we don't want to realize that. So Jane, what do you think it's going to take to put an end to racism? Oh, I think it's going to take education. I'm absolutely positive that I'm right about that. I think if we leave people out of ignorance, 
where race is concerned, eventually we'll look at things like all those protest marches that are going on and realize that those kids are risking their lives because of COVID-19 out there in the street protesting something ugly that is happening to people who don't look like them, but who are equal human beings. I think you have to say to those young people who are doing that, obviously you believe in what you're doing. You could die as a result of this because you aren't practicing social distancing. But evidently to them, right is more important than a comfortable life. You see, for me, being despised isn't the problem. Being killed isn't the problem. I would rather die than live a useless life. And if I don't tell the truth Powerful. as a human being, if I don't tell the truth as a human being, then this life that I was allowed to enjoy, and for a very long time, by the way, is useless. I have wasted my time. I don't have, I do not intend to waste my time by perpetuating a lie that was made up to give one group power and to take all the power away from another group. Have you any idea what we in this country have lost and have wasted as a result of not taking advantage of the brilliance of people of other color groups? Do you have any idea how brilliant those first modern human beings must have been to leave the area of the equator and travel without benefit of any modern technology and populate every landmass on the face of the earth? How, much, how many brains did that take? How much talent and skill and courage and curiosity did those people have? And every, every human being on the face of the earth, if you trace your DNA back far enough, we'll find DNA that came from a country in Africa. So don't tell me, don't bother me with Caucasians. <laughs> Baloney. The first people on, who were, who, <laughs> the first modern human beings were called Caucasians because they were pale-faced because the only reason what we call Caucasians were pale-faced is because as those people moved farther and farther from the equator, their bodies produced less and less melanin, so their skin, their hair, and their eyes got lighter and lighter. Their brains didn't get smaller but their skin, their hair, and their eyes got lighter and lighter. You've got to realize that if, if they had been, if, if people had evolved in that area, Southern and Western Europe, they wouldn't have lived through the first winter. They didn't have ready access to food. They didn't have any clothing. They wouldn't have known where to find water. They'd have had a hard time finding something to eat. Mm -hmm. But in Africa, all those things, you, would, you didn't need clothing. And all those things were readily available and they took advantage of them and they moved out and they, they are the reason I am here. They're the reason I exist. And to this day, they're still taking the resources from, from Africa to this day. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're trying to build an empire and we're going to get it done. Except that it's going to be more difficult when people of different color groups decide, oh, wait a minute, having less melanin in your skin as the hole in the ozone layer gets larger and larger, more and more sunlight is going to be able to enter our environment and pierce your cells and damage your cells if you're a person who's very pale-faced. So think about that. If you think our numbers are shrinking now, 
wait until the hole in the ozone layer gets larger and we're exposed to more and more of the rays of the damaging rays of the sun. Those of us without much melanin are going to be in real bad shape. Oh boy. <laughs> what did you say? Oh boy. <laughs> Shame Jane. on you. Shame on you. <laughs> Jane, so what, what are some action, actionable steps white people can t- implement right now to combat racism? Um, Go on- to my website. Go to my website, jane at janeelliot.com. Download the printed learning materials that you'll find there. The first one is a set of typical statements that white folks make that think they aren't racist. Read through it. See if you agree with them. Then go to the second page, which is a set of clarifications of those statements, what, how they are perceived by those who are on the receiving end of them. Then go to the page that is the commitments to combat racism. There are, I think, 18 different things that you can do with your, with your own racism to, call, to cure your own problem. Now some liberal white female is going to say, racism isn't an individual problem, it's a societal problem. Well, fool, societies are made up of individuals. And if individuals change their behaviors, society changes its behavior. Make no mistake about that. Now, if you read through those, I think there are 18 commitments to combat racism. Check yes, those that you have done. Check no, those that you haven't done. Then circle one that you check no, put the date beside it, and do it for a month. It will change the way you see your world, and it will change the way people in your world see you. Then, and you do that every, every month. You choose another one until you've done every one of those 18. And in the meantime, go to the bibliography and read every list on that book, particularly on that list, particularly the ones about racism. And by the gods of war, by this magazine. See these two girls? They're twin girls. Wow. They look like twins to you. They are twins. This is the April 2018 issue of National Geographic magazine buy this magazine and read it. Inside it, you will find, among other things, this page, which is a map that shows where we started, where the first human beings started, and where they moved to, and how they moved all over the world, which is the only reason there are people all over the world, because black people, decided to take off and they did. Is that interesting? Very. You see, black people were here before slavery, but we called them Indians. Black people, Indians, in fact, Native Americans, are some people who came from Africa and whose skin and hair and eyes and bone structure and facial structure adapted to the natural environment. They are Indians as sure, they are African as surely as you are. Hmm. So what's next for Jane Elliott? Well, next I'm going to go in the other room and turn on television and put my feet up so that my legs don't swell after sitting for so long. And I'm going to watch people say ignorant things about race. And I'm going to watch them say there are many racial groups in that group, many racial people. And, and I'm going to think, oh, what are we going to do? And I'm just going to get really disgusted and really tense. And then I'm going to then, after I get just so much of it, I'm going to turn to the Westerns and watch giant John Wayne, the big hero, shoot people on the basis of the color of their skin. 
and spank people because they're women hmm. and whip people because they're smaller than he is. And he's the big hero in Western movies in this country for the last, what, 40 years? I'm going to fight against all of that nonsense. And I'm going to be unloved, but that's all right. That's not a new experience. My husband loved me greatly for 60 years. And I miss him terribly. So it goes. Hmm. I don't know what's going to happen after that. I'm going to do some more of these interviews. And I don't know what I've not, I'm not working now because I, when I travel to colleges and universities, I have to fly. I'm not getting into a flying Petri dish again for a very long time. So I'm going to do um, online, online school education whenever anybody wants me to. And I'm going to charge them for it. <coughs> not as much as I'd charge if I were having to travel. Fair enough. It's, it's, it's fair enough. So Jane, well, uh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that until either I die or they take me out. Either way, it doesn't matter. I've lived for 86 really good years. If, if I don't get 10 more, so be it. If I do, the idea of one race, the human race, is an idea whose time will never come. It's an idea no power on earth is going to be able to stop. So if I haven't done anything but that in my life, I've done that. This is the Purpose Round, where entrepreneurs, creatives, and social impactors are asked a series of questions that highlight their true purpose. So Jane, first off, what is your purpose? It forces, so it sticks out on both sides. It forces your facial muscles, muscles into a smile. It isn't smiling, but it forces your facial muscles into the configuration of a smile, and it makes you feel better. Now that sounds like a stupid thing to say, but I've tried it, and on the worst some of the worst times I've had, I take a pencil, I stick it in my mouth like this, and then I, I automatically feel better because I feel like I'm smiling. Mm -hmm. And there used to be a, you know, this is, this is really, people are really going to think, okay, she's, she's a third grader. There used to be a, child, a children's program on the radio. And one of the songs that they sang every day was, wake up with a smile on your face and you'll be happy all day long. So in the morning now, still, the first thing I do is smile. Because the, that's what made an impression on me when I was a kid. And I found out that, yeah, if you can wake up with a smile on your face, you can wipe out a whole lot of the unpleasant dreams you had and the other unpleasant things you've seen and heard and been exposed to. Works for me, doesn't have to work for everybody. I suppose it's my answer to drinking. <laughs> my mother was an alcoholic, so I don't want to be an alcoholic, so I, I smile a lot, okay? I'm, a little, I'm very strange. I'm, I realize that I'm strange. Never said I wasn't. What are your top three most influential books? Oh, the, the Myth of Race, which is a bad title. It should be The Lie of Race, but people wouldn't buy it if it's called The Lie of Race. The Myth of Race is absolutely excellent. This copy of Reader's Digest is absolutely excellent. This book, oh my God, everybody has to read this book, The Color of Law, because when you do, you'll realize that the laws we have were all written by people who believed in the lie of race. So they wrote laws that segregated areas because they thought it was the thing to do, because they believed the lie of race. You have to read this book. 
because it will tell you that all the most of the segregation that happens in the country, in this country, in cities and towns, is not the result of de facto segregation or people who, are, who didn't want to be with people who weren't like themselves. It's the result of people who didn't know any better writing laws that they thought were the right thing to do, keeping people separate. When you read this book, you cannot support the people who are saying, we're going we're gonna to keep, we're, gonna, we're going to have these segregated areas because we all know that those people don't want to be around us. We don't want to be around those people. You have to read this book and you have to read, <laughs> you, have, you have to read this one. Every parent and every teacher, every educator has to read this book. The Racial Conditioning of Our Children, written by Nathan Rutstein. And the subtitle is Ending Psychological Genocide in the Schools. Ending Psychological Genocide in the Schools. We could teach the truth in the schools. And we could have little black boys and little brown boys and girls who go out of school thoroughly, totally, really educated and feeling good about themselves. But as long as only the people who are lighter skinned are allowed to feel good about themselves, we have psychological genocide going on in the schools. Everybody needs to read this. Every teacher, educator should be required to read this book. And then every child, every child of every color should read this book, The Color of Man. It is simply a beautiful description of how we got our color and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean perfection or, or imperfection. It's just skin color. Every kid needs to see this book. It should be in the, in the school library. It should be in every classroom, K through eight. Kids have a right to know the truth. And this is the truth. You want me to go on? I've got a, I've got a list of about 350 books that I think. Wow. If, if, and, and I think that every parent should go to the library if they possibly can, sign out books that tell the truth, take them home and tell their kids and their husbands or whoever it is they're with, we will have half an hour of sustained silent reading every day in this house. Half an hour every day, you will sit down with a book and you will read. And you will do that every day so that you get so in the habit of reading that you'll turn off the television because you'll, you'll get in the habit of reading. And it, it's, it's, it really turns you into a different kind of person. Oh, oh. Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization. Everybody has to read Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization. Oh my Lord, if you realize that a month, we have one month, don't we, of black history. Yep. If you really told black history, you would have to have nine months of black history because there is so much there that we don't recognize because we didn't write it. And if we didn't write it, I'm talking about we, pale faces. If we didn't write it, it must not be true. Everybody should read Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization. Absolutely. Anthony. Um, is there any last piece of value you can leave with our listeners? Remember that you're all members of the same race. Every person on the face of the earth is one of my 30th to 50th cousins. That's every person. And I get really upset when my lighter skinned cousins abuse my darker skinned cousins because of my lighter skinned cousins ignorance about skin color and what it means. It's time to stop thinking of different races and start thinking of valuable human beings of every color. And I believe that we were created equal, but you and I know that you and I aren't equal. I'll never be as tall as you are. I'll never be as strong as you are. I'll never be as young as you are. 
I'll never know what you know about racism. However, I expect to be treated equally by God. I don't expect that from human beings. I expect to be treated fairly by human beings, but God is the only one who sees us as equals. The rest of the world doesn't have to, and it isn't necessary for you and I to be equal to communicate with one another. Another thing, you'll, you'll really object to this. I don't believe in the golden rule. The golden rule says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Now, am I sure that you want to be treated the way I want to be treated? If you and I get on an airplane and I have a piece of luggage to go in the overhead rack and you say to me, can I put that up for you, ma'am? I'll say, thank you very much. You had some good parents and I'll be glad to have you do that. But if you and I get on an airplane and you have a piece of luggage that has to go in the overhead rack and I say, can I put that up for you, Sonny? What are you going to say? Nah, I'm, I'm okay. No, I'm good. No, thanks. I can, I, can, I can handle it. I can do it. Yeah. See, we don't want to be treated the same. I believe in the platinum rule, which says do unto others as others would have you do unto them. Treat mm. others the way they want to be treated. And in order to find out how they want to be treated, you have to ask them. You have to listen to the answer. And if what they ask you to do is an indecent, immoral, or illegal, you have to do it. But the first thing is you have to listen to their answer. You have to learn to listen to people so that we communicate with one another instead of past one another. That makes sense to you? Absolutely. Makes good sense to me because people tell me, I believe in the golden rule. And I say, uh-huh. Well, let me see now. You love your neighbor? Yes. Well, you see, I love brownie pudding with ice cream on it. But that's not the same as what I felt for my husband. We need to stop throwing the word love around because it has lost all its meaning because we have overused it. So Jane, how can our listeners reach out to you and learn more about your mission? <laughs> Go to, just Google, just, just, just uh, enter Jane Elliott on your computer and then look out. <laughs> you will see things and hear things you don't want to see, you don't want to hear, you don't want to admit, and you'll change the channel very quickly. And I understand that. But the fact that you, a black man, a young black man, is asking to speak to me, for, and you're from Canada, tells me that you and I can communicate with one another as fully functioning human beings. And we can look at one another and see each other as fully functioning human beings. I think that's, that says something about you. It says that you're willing to accept somebody that looks like me, who has been your enemy. People like me have been your enemy for as many years as you have been alive, whether or not you knew it. Your parents knew it. And white parents knew it. And teachers knew it. And you can say there's no racism in Canada until you drive north from where did we start and up to where Robert Service wrote the poem, The Cremation of Sam McGee. And you see what life is like for First Nations people and compare it to what it's like for the white people in Canada. And then all of a sudden you realize that, oh, wait a minute now. Yeah, there's racism. Look at this mess. Look at this. Look what's happening here. Look at what is being allowed to happen here. Look at what is happening in Canada where we don't have racism. 
Well, if you don't have racism, you have a whole lot of ignorance. Jane, thank but you. But not for as much as we have, because you see, the, the population of California, the state of California, is equal to the population of the entire country of Canada. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that is scary. That is really scary. Anyway, is there anything else I can depress you with? <laughs> Jay, no, I mean, you've, you've given so much great information. I really appreciate you coming on this show today. Well, I appreciate being asked to come on this show today. And we've been at it for an hour and a half. Now, that's long enough for anybody, okay? <laughs> All right, and thank you, Purposeful Story family, for listening to the Purposeful Story podcast. And remember, live every day with purpose so all your actions are clear. Talk soon. This episode was edited by Clayton Bob of Precise AV Solutions, and the beats were created by DJ Nana. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. All it does is help drive more listeners to the value we're bringing to your eardrums. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.